0: Hi, this is Casey Markey for MediaWise, and you're listening to the Eat Blog Talk podcast.
1: Hey, food bloggers. Before we dig into this incredible episode, here is a quick word about the tool Clarity. We will be right back with some incredible information about SEO in 2022. See you in a bit. Clarity is a powerful tool that allows you to organize, optimize, and update your blog content for maximum growth. My food blog, Pip and Ebby, has nearly 1,000 posts. I have learned so much about constructing an incredible, valuable blog post since I began my blog in 2010. It should go without saying that my older blog posts are not quite as solid as my current blog posts. Some of my older content is missing nutrition information, alt text, internal links, no follow links video and some are missing all of the above. Clarity allows me to easily identify those posts that need those elements, create projects to make sure that the updates are made and track how those updates impact my traffic. I already have great recipes. Clarity helps me add the frosting that takes those posts from great to outstanding. If you are interested in checking out Clarity, head to CLARITI.com forward slash eat blog talk. To sign up for the waitlist and take advantage of their $25 a month forever plan. Go to Clarity.com forward slash EatBlogTalk or check out the resources page on EatBlogTalk.com forward slash resources. What is up food bloggers? Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, the podcast for food bloggers looking for the value and confidence that will move the needle forward in your business. This episode is sponsored by Rank IQ. I'm your host, Megan Porta, and you are listening to episode number 283. Today, I'm talking to Casey Marquis of MediaWise, and he is going to talk to us about the state of SEO for food bloggers in 2022. Speaker, writer, and trainer Casey Marquis is the founder of digital consultancy company MediaWise. He is a well-known SEO professional with 20 plus years of experience. Casey has trained SEO teams on five different continents. He has spoken at over 100 conferences, and he has worked with thousands of bloggers in the food, lifestyle, and travel niches. He also collects comic books, enjoys watching trashy reality TV with his wife Tiffany, and he believes bacon should
0: be its own food group.
1: Hi, Casey. Thank you so much for joining me today on Eat Blog Talk. It's such a pleasure to talk to you again,
0: Megan. The pleasure is entirely mine. As we were just discussing off off uh, you know off off the camera here, off the off the, uh, what the mic, so to speak. If I could only get this amount of attention from my family, I would be on cloud nine.
1: <laughs> well, food bloggers love you and they <laughs> eat up absolutely everything you have to say. So we want your knowledge, Casey. So we're here. We're here supporting you. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So we have a lot to discuss about SEO in 2022. There are some new topics that you brought to my attention that I didn't even know were really topics to discuss. So I'm really excited to learn from you. So why don't we just move through those, if you don't mind? And then if we have time, I have a few additional things that you could answer if we have time for that. So first, I guess you mentioned this like flood of food bloggers and bloggers in general coming onto the scene and that it's never been more competitive. I wanna hear more about that.
0: Well, uh, it's very interesting. Over the last couple of years, and this is mostly fueled from the pandemic, we had never had more people stuck at home than ever before at any one time in history. And this provided the impetus for many of those bloggers to finally say, you know, I've always wanted to start a blog. And that was their opportunity. And there has never been at any time in history more food and lifestyle bloggers. Than we have now, the the domain registration numbers that we've been able to pull together have just been incredible. There was a uh, an incredible increase. I think there was a twenty seven percent increase just in domain registrations in twenty twenty. That has continued to go up, and that continued to go up in twenty twenty one. And to me, how I see is it's reflected in the number of bloggers who contact me for audits. Uh, I used to be that maybe I would be at ten to fifteen percent of bloggers who had blogs starting the last two years. And over the last sixteen months that number has risen to twenty-five to thirty percent. So it's almost a double. These are these are brand new bloggers who have come onto the scene and they're like, I really, you know, I started this blog during the pandemic. It actually did pretty well because of the unnatural, as you're aware, the unnatural cycle traffics that we had and cyclical trend of traffics that we had that were was a very unnatural, especially with Google referrals. And it's just these bloggers got to taste of that. I'm like, oh, I want more. But now here we are in 2022; those trends have started to revert back to previous, and they're like, oh my gosh, now I better, I better start to uh, go out and get a little bit more professional help to make sure that I get everything off on the right foot so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. So do you have numbers by chance? Like you said, the domain registration numbers have gone up 27% in 2020. Do you know what that number is?
0: Oh, no, not off the top of my head, but it's crazy.
1: Is that easy to find out? I'm, I'm always curious about that. Like, How many food bloggers are there? How many active food bloggers? Do you have any idea about that?
0: No idea at all. We've tried and it's it's just unnatural. I mean, the the, the earliest number that we found, we, had, we were looking at doing a study Ourselves And again, we only – the studies that we do, especially with Top At Rank and myself, is we'll run a lot of focus groups, and we'll routinely be able to easily pull in thousands of potential food bloggers across the United States to answer these questions, or we'll actually do reviews where we have people who are visiting food blogs. It's not a problem to find those people to fill these focus groups. But whenever we try to do an actual count on how many people actually have a food blog or basically just a lifestyle or do-it-yourself blog – the numbers are all over the place. We've got anywhere from fifty-seven thousand all the way up to five hundred thousand just in the U.S. And we know that those numbers are not really accurate because a lot of those have folded, or a lot of those are are uh, um, you know they 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 basically don't update their site anymore. We have I have some bloggers who have blogs that. They, ha- they haven't even touched in years. You know, they Maybe it's not their main blog, but a couple other blogs they just have. And of course those would dilute the statistics quite a bit. But what we have seen specifically is just a general rise in the domain registrations and in the referrals that we're getting. And what we're also finding is that this influx of new bloggers, a lot more savvy than traditional bloggers. They tend to want to invest uh, money initially right out of the gate. Where it used to be, and I still see this trend a lot, and even bloggers who've been around two, three to four years, they're just not inclined to invest a lot of money because, of course, the blog is a is a losing proposition at the beginning. But the bloggers who have gone out and invested, you know, I'm going to buy this keyword course, I'm going to make sure that my, my hosting is not on Bluehost or some cheap host out of the gate or, or who've gone in and invested in training for their photography and others, those are the bloggers that have been building traffic faster. And uh, more easily than, uh, say, 2016, 2017, as an example.
1: I have been saying this all along that the newer bloggers are so savvy Mm -hmm. and they're so smart and they're so driven and they really dig into like web stories, for example, and they are just here to learn and grow so fast so our competition, I feel like, is the new bloggers.
0: No, it, it absolutely is, because I've never seen more bloggers qualify for Mediavine or AdThrive faster than at any other point in history. I've had audits with bloggers who literally started their blog less than six months, and they're already at 50,000 sessions a month qualifying for Mediavine, or they're moving on and trying to you know, push through to uh, six figures a month with regards to traffic. And they've done that by really deciding early on, I am going to make this a business. This is not a hobby. And that's the differential I've been seeing over the last couple of years is because I still get a lot of bloggers who want to schedule an audit. And one of the very first things I ask, is this a hobby for you or is this a business? Because this is a business investment. And, you know, if you really want to take this to the next level, you know, you're going to have to do this, this, and this, you know, invest in this, invest here and whatever. And I'm finding that these bloggers who are scheduling these audits, especially over the last year, have already made these investments. They've already invested in a quality keyword course. They've already done a professional photography course. They've they've already mapped out content, they. They're they're there just to have me fine tune their strategy, do a full and complete technical audit and kind of provide them an overview of their process as it is to find any holes.
1: Quite a contrast to my 11-year long journey to figuring <laughs> all of this out. I feel like yeah, I just feel so in awe of the bloggers that are coming onto the scene now. And like you said, they're just savvy and smart and they are willing to invest. What does this mean for the rest of us, like food bloggers who have been around for five plus years? What does this new flood of bloggers mean?
0: Well, it means substantially it's more competitive now. I can't tell you how many established bloggers have reached out. just over the last three months, with traffic drops and these are very big bloggers we're talking five to 10 million sessions a month you know my traffic is down it's abnormal i know that i had this uh, COVID influenced change in search behavior but even now compared to last year you know my traffic is maybe 10 15 20 percent down and a lot of that is increased competition or it's a or it's kind of a most of my business is still the small to middle bloggers and that's where the most competition is is because everyone's going after these hard to find long tail keywords and they're, you know, if you're able to get in and get these, you know, really dial in your keyword research, the vast majority of traffic is going to be from these, you know, three to, to six word keyword phrases. And that's really where a lot of these newer bloggers are starting with is they're really dialing in their keyword research. It used to be that when we'd have an audit and bloggers were relatively small and I say small between anywhere from, you know, 10,000 to 75,000 sessions a month, I'd routinely see 35 to 40 percent of their traffic from a very small number of recipes, three to five, so to speak. And now I'm starting to see, especially with these newer bloggers, that they've, they have a, a very, they have you know, 50, 60, 100 recipes, and all those recipes are generating very similar totals because they've really dialed in the keyword research on those. So it's never just one big recipe, for example, that's driving the majority of their traffic.
1: Right. That makes sense. So keyword research is a huge thing if you want to stand out in this competitive market. is. Is there any other way along the thread of SEO that we can stand out?
0: Well, and that's a that's a very good point because I'm a lot of these established bloggers are, are have written me and they're like oh, I just feel like everyone's doing the same thing and I'm like well if everyone's doing the same thing hopefully they're listening to competent advice but it's not enough to republish content these days you're really going to have to look at expanding your non Google channels are you doing enough to increase your profile I one of the things that I personally try to do is as you're aware I I try not to say no to a podcast request or if someone wants to interview me even if It's a very small site. I'm all for it because it increases my reach, increases my brand mentions, and increases my visibility. And that needs to be the same with bloggers. I have a lot of bloggers who contact me saying, I really want to make this a career, but they're so shy that they can't reach out and do any PR. They don't want to submit themselves to podcasts. They don't want to participate in roundups. Roundups are still the number one vehicle by which we drive links and awareness for the average blog. That's how you get noticed for larger roundups with Better Homes and Gardens and Redbook and MSN.com and the likes. So we really want to make sure that we're visible for that whenever we can. And a lot of that magic happens in Facebook groups, and it requires you to be visible to go in and participate in these groups. You had an audit. One of the things I gave you was a list of Facebook groups. To go in and actively participate in. And that's something that we that you know, I even though I give bloggers these tools, some of them just don't of all of them. You
1: mentioned podcast guesting. I know you send a lot of amazing guests my way for eBlog talk, which I so thoroughly appreciate. And I think that's a really great way too to expand your reach in a super easy way. I mean it's like an hour of your time.
0: Absolutely. And I just tell people come up with a you know, everyone I send to you I tell them come up with a 60 second elevator pitch what is it about your blog that's different than the million of other blogs this is what Megan is looking for try to impart some knowledge to the, to the general public and so on and uh, it's got a lot of bloggers out of their shell so for that I really you know I applaud you for doing that because you're a, you're a very good interviewer you're able to bring that out and I know I've seen that with a lot of the people that we've sent over who couldn't even wouldn't get up and speak in front of their family and that they're putting themselves out there for a podcast opportunity.
1: It's way less intimidating than people think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a conversation yeah. and it allows you to think through what you're really good at and gives you more confidence. And then you get a link, right? Because I link to everybody from my show notes. So that's like double bonus right there.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But I think what I would end this in this question with specifically is that if you're a larger blogger on the call and you've suffered traffic drops and there is a lot of you, you're not alone. This is very, very common, especially in the first quarter of uh, 2022 here. I just had a, I just signed a consult yesterday. Uh, I'm, booking several months in advance, but it's literally with one of the top five sites in the world. And they have lost 15% of their traffic since January 1st. And when we do a year-over-year comparison, they're down 30%, 35%. Well, in their case, they made some mistakes they shouldn't have made. They no-indexed some content what they they shouldn't have no-indexed. They went through a site redesign that that had some bungling. Those things happen. That's why you get an audit so you have an experience third party pair of eyes to review all that in detail.
1: Wow. Well yeah, it's good to hear that I mean, I don't wish that on anyone to experience traffic drops, but it is kind of comforting in a way to know that everyone across the board is experiencing it because there's so many people out
0: there. There really is. I mean the bloggers that are doing incredibly well now are you know and I pull out some names here, Carrie with Clean 80 Kitchen, who I just visited with yesterday. She's like, man, I just wish I was doing better. I'm like, Carrie, your your traffic is up very noticeably year over year. You're doing a very good job. You've almost got through republishing all of your content. She's doing very well. And so sometimes we have to give ourselves a little grace. You know, you're doing very well. You we want to continue on that trend. Uh, it's just, you know, you might think you're not doing well, but when you look at the bottom line traffic... If people are losing traffic, in many cases, you know, we want to look at Google first. But in Carrie's case, she was losing all of her traffic from Pinterest because Pinterest has been literally a dumpster fire for the last <laughs> dumpster months. fire. So we don't really we can't really rely on that traffic much uh, these days. I haven't
1: used quite that term, but I think it fits yeah, pretty well. There you
0: go. There you go. I do not even own stock anymore. I I shorted them a ton last year, and it was great.
1: Oh yeah, it's been devastating for many people listening right yeah, now. Yes. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, that is great to know all of that. I love all of that information. And I think we can move on to the next topic that you brought up, which is this GDPR issue for food bloggers. So tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so for those of you who are not aware of the GDPR, it's basically the general data I think it's protection regulation that went into effect in Europe back in 2018. And it's it is an extremely voluminous act that is involved there to protect privacy. It's unfortunately it's a it's it's become a chimera of overreaching regulations and it's really impacted A ton of bloggers operating, of course, first in Europe, but it's also going to impact most bloggers in the United States because you are susceptible to this regulation if you have any visitors at all to your site from Europe. So what we're seeing recently, and I'm happy to provide some URLs for you that you can share in the show notes, but we've had two recent issues just in 2022 uh, it first started with a case in January uh, – well, it was a recent case in France targeting Google Analytics. Basically, France is now saying that anyone running Google Analytics is is in foul of the GDPR because it collects information and sends it back to Google. And so this has a, caused a lot of uproar. Now people are thinking, oh, my God, do I even want to use Google Analytics now because France is going after these sites using it because there's apparently some issues with really – Uh, Google being more clear in their declarations about what data is being collected. And then we also had another case in Germany which targeted Google Fonts. I'm not sure if you heard that, but basically a website was sued by the government because they were using Google Fonts. And for those of you who are not aware, if you use Google Fonts and you don't self-host those fonts, those fonts will send information data back to Google. It's very common. Uh, Many of you are probably using the Fees theme. Skyler was very uh, proactive about this sent out a note to all of his subscribers, I believe about a week ago, two weeks ago, talking about this, and it is something to be aware. And basically, if you're using Google Fonts, this is a great reason not to use Google Fonts unless you are self-hosting those fonts on your own site because you don't want to have these third-party tools collecting and sending information, where in reality, we don't necessarily know what that information is. Okay, so stay
1: away from Google Fonts. What else can we do to kind of alleviate this problem?
0: Well, you want to use system fonts on most sites whenever possible. I, you know, there are millions of sites who use Google Fonts, but you certainly do not have to, especially if you're a custom site. Most of you are using uh, your custom system fonts anywhere. If you're on Feast, this is now built into the Feast plugin. You can just go in and remove Google Fonts, use system fonts automatically you want to use Google Fonts, and you certainly can, you just have to self host them yourself. What we want to see here is this isn't a reason to panic, but for U.S. bloggers, we want to just kind of reaffirm it's too soon to make any concrete moves because we're waiting on both of these cases to be appealed, and we're also waiting on formal responses from Google covering the issues. Uh, but again, if you want to be proactive, with especially with the Google Fonts issue, download those to your site or remove them. Put it on your put it on your you know your uh, your head head display, so to speak. I know many of you are running. If you're running ads, uh, AdThrive and MediaVine have both done very well with providing custom privacy policies that kind of uh, kind of communicate what you're running, so that you can so that you can allow people to opt out as needed. We're still on the fence whether or not these privacy policies are really going to protect you, but it's better than doing nothing so to speak.
1: Great to know. Is there anything about that before we move on, the GDPR?
0: Nope, that's it. I don't want to confuse people too much. Just concentrate on those (laughs) two issues right there
1: enough confusion. Um, Let's move on to some deferred ad loading advice, I guess, given to us by an ad network.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, about 2019 is where really we started the push for these core web vitals to really improve bottom line page speed. And one of the biggest issues we had with ad companies is that they just were not making their ads fast. And one of the fastest ways to make ads fast is to defer them from loading completely, which means that we want your content to pop in on mobile first, then you your ads, and this makes perfect sense. Not only is it a better user experience, but it's also going to lower the concept of DOM nodes, which can cause uh, crawling issues with Google, especially if your DOM size gets too much. For example, many of you are familiar with the PageSpeed Insights tool. If you scroll down, there's various warnings. One of them is DOM size. And if you get above 1,500 DOM nodes, so to speak, Google kind of big red klaxon, warning, 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 because this can cause crawling issues and we've saw that over the years even for the biggest sites where sometimes they'll be they'll be looking at Google and for some reason the listings will just disappear. No thumbnails will fall out of the search results or a listing will fall out of the carousel and we have to resubmit it. And and for a while we couldn't really figure out what was going on with that, but in many ways we found that one of the reasons was because of an excessive DOM node size. In other words, there was too many resources on the page. And it was causing problems for Google to crawl and algorithmically score all the content. So keeping a DOM size below 1500 is just a best practice. Well, you do that by paginating your comments, but you also do that by limiting your ads and limiting your overall requests. And so be it Mediavine or AdThrive, when you're running ads, you're adding hundreds of server requests to a page. And that's going to cause issues with the size of the file specifically. So what had been done, Mediavine started it, and then AdThrive finally came on the scene a little bit later, is introduce deferred ad loading. Now, Mediavine has been great about this. This is the default. They always defer their ads. They realize that that's better for users. They realize that it's uh, better for UX. And they realize that even though there might be a small dip in your earnings, it's going to look better and perform better overall with users. Now, ad Thrive was kind of cajoled into doing this. They basically only allow deferred ad loading if you opted in. And they were like, oh, you know, we are going to provide the option, but just understand that you have the possibility of losing 3% of your possible ad income. And they really pushed this. And we're like, guys, dude, come on. You're, you're loading 1,300 requests for your ads. You have to offer this deferred ad loading. No one's going to care about the loss of 3%. And I can tell you from experience with the thousands of sites I've audited, every time we have turned deferred ad loading on with AdThrive, traffic has gone up, not down. And that makes it easier for users to interact with the site, makes this easier for build traffic, and it makes it easier for a user to actually see the first impression of the content, especially above the fold, without being inundated with these above-the-fold header ads, with uh, autoplaying videos, the like. Unfortunately, what's happened over the last couple of weeks is we've been informed that AdThrive is aggressively pushing clients to turn off this default, no different ad loading, and we just can't figure it out. They, they keep coming back to us with these, well, there's no SEO reason to have this on, and just baloney. It's absolutely incorrect. I'm an SEO. I've seen this in action. I'm telling you that it absolutely does have benefits, and we definitely want to give the users the choice. Now, I believe that they are giving users the choice, but they're really pushing back against, well, you know, this is what we believe. And, you know, if you do turn this on, you run the risk of losing a little bit of income.
1: So your advice is to, if you're on AdThrive, to just kind of push back with it and insist.
0: Oh, absolutely. Definitely leave it on. You know, it makes sense. We want the ads to load later on the page. We want the DOM nodes to be reduced. We want users to have to actually see our content first. And when we do, we they perform. Form better Now, as I asked AdThrive to explain, we, we submitted some questions for them. They never got back to us. I went through NerdPress. I'm not sure if they're going to dig their heels in. But my question is this. If that, if Mediavine can provide a deferred ad loading experience that provides a superior above the fold UX, no discernible loss in RPM and results in an average PSI paid speed inside square of 83, then why can't AdThrive do the same thing? I think AdThrive has a lot going for it. I don't think this is a, a good move by them. And I just want those of you on the call who are running AdThrive understand that you have the option. Just like with MediaVine, you know, when you have the option, you don't have to run, um, you know, the arrival button, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But just you have the option. You control your ads as a publisher, not your ad company.
1: And if you are with AdThrive, The default is to not have that on, correct?
0: Yeah, I believe so right now. So we want to make sure that if you are moving, say, from Mediavine to AdThrive, that's going to be a big change for you because you'll move from deferred automatic ad loading to now, I don't believe that's the default. You'll have to actually ask them to turn on the deferred ad loading, and that should be on top of your list there.
1: Okay. I think after my audit with you, I did ask them right away because you pushed for that and I didn't get any pushback. They just did it right away. But Good. I, I mean, it Fantastic. was the, it was the default. And I'd been on AdThrive for a couple of years. Right. Hey, food bloggers. I would love to take just a minute here to tell you about my new favorite keyword research tool, which is none other than Rank IQ. Why is it my favorite? I saved so much time writing blog posts. It used to take me hours upon hours to get a post written. And even then, I didn't even really know if the keyword I was focusing on was going to get any traction. When I focus on low competition, high search volume keywords that have been hand picked and optimized within Rank IQ, I know there is a really good chance that my post is going to rank quickly. Let me tell you about just one of my posts that has done really well to date. I published a roundup focusing on the keyword what to serve with sweet potatoes after running it through the optimizer on Rank IQ on May 14th, 2021. As I'm recording this, it is January 24th, 2022, and that URL has gotten over 25,000 page views, so that's within eight months. 25,000 page views is significant, especially when I combine it with the other keywords. I've run over 100 now through the optimizer that have also been optimized through rank IQ. I am focusing on tripling my blog traffic in 2022, and honestly, I owe it all to RankIQ. Go to rankiq.com to sign up and see for yourself how powerful this incredible keyword research tool is. rankiq.com, I hope you love it as much as I do and see the value in it like I have. Let's move on to some Bad advice that has been given in webinars recently to bloggers that you want to address.
0: You know, I one of the things that we really pride ourselves on, and I personally pride myself on, is that you know if someone sends me an email about a piece of advice, I always ask them, you know, where did you get this? Did they cite any data to support it? And is there, you know, and I always look to see if there's something that Google has published to support this, or I would use my own personal experience as someone who's audited, you know, literally thousands of food blogs now or has been in this industry for 22 plus years, whether or not that advice really clicks with what our understanding is. And so when there's a big red flag, we want to address it. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've had some webinars uh, that have gone out and there's some very issues in there that we definitely want to push back on as much as possible. And one of the first ones was uh, given to me by a, a blogger just just earlier this week and they wouldn't tell me who said or what the webinar was because they apparently and I'm not kidding you, the blogger said these people could destroy me, end quote. That's what they said. <gasps> Whoa. Not kidding. Okay. That's never good. So if you're ever working out of a an opinion of fear, that's bad. There I can assure you that there's no one out there that can destroy you as a blogger. That's that's a myth. So but the advice was that they wanted you to index your categories. And I can tell you from experience that's and ninety-nine out of a hundred cases, extremely poor advice. And I believe that the reasoning they were giving to no index categories is that categories just are not qualified pages. Categories can bring down your RPM for ads, and we don't want to have our pay- send users to category pages. We want to send them to qualified blog posts. Well. On the, on the surface, you would think, you know, that advice sounds actually pretty good, but in reality, it's just not correct at all. Because here's the thing, from an SEO standpoint, categories are very important to drive topicality throughout the site. It's also a very important discovery channel for Google. Google goes in, they crawl your categories, they discover your content. It's also very important for internal linking. There's a plethora of reasons why categories are very important categories are your main landing pages they're literally the windows into the house that is your blog we can optimize categories i have clients who get tens of thousands of clicks a month from their category pages we would not want to know index those now in the rare case that a category page and, and this is true by the way category pages routinely will have a lower rpm then your recipe pages. It makes total sense because category pages don't get as much traffic and the bounce rate might even be a little bit higher, but it's, it's not a big deal. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, a good example would be my uh, colleague, Chef Dennis. You're probably mm, aware of Chef yes, Dennis. I love uh, Chef Dennis. Chef Dennis's site has incredible category pages. He has one of the highest RPMs of any food blog in the world. won't tell you what it is, but it's crazy high. And that includes his category pages, which he runs ads on. So, to make a general blanket statement that you should no index category pages is just it 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 borders on um, malpractice with regards to advice that you're pushing to the average blogger. And I would absolutely question the credentials or credibility of any SEO who would really push that. Because if you're really concerned about your categories. Which again, you should be optimizing fully with um, custom titles and descriptions on page H1s, above the fold content, interlinking these for topicality, all of that. This is a given you should be doing. If you're still concerned that you have low RPMs, then just don't tell your ad company not to run ads on your category pages. Problem solved. But don't know index those category pages because of some perceived slights that any competent SEO can advise you to fix professionally and competently.
1: All right. You made a good case for that. <laughs> Is there any other advice that you wish to push back on?
0: Exactly. So the second issue involves uh, another webinar that was done just about two weeks ago, and it involves some advice from the SEO who I'd never heard of telling bloggers to move recipe cards to the top of their pages. Now, this isn't a new recommendation, but it's still an incredibly poor recommendation. And this is something that we've tested. I've I've tested it with other SEOs years ago. I've tested it as recently as eight weeks ago. It is a horrible move. When we move recipe cards to the top of the page, the logic is, well, if I move my recipe card to the top of the page, I've increased the UX and usability of my page considerably because most people are looking for the recipe card. It makes sense. The problem is, is that they're never scrolling down and activating any of the other content below the page. They're not having any ads pop in. This is what happens. Your ad income drops 70 to 80% right away. So clearly, you would think this is an example where on the surface, this seems like a good UX first recommendation. But in practice, it's horrible, especially if you're running a business. This is why we go with the jump button. We have the jump button at the top of the page. So if someone is really in a hurry to get down to the recipe card, we provide them that avenue or channel. We do not move the recipe card to the top of the page. And again, this is an example where we have a lot of new bloggers who are hearing this for the first time thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to try that. And then they do it. And they're like, oh my God, my, why is my income so low for this last week? And then we come in and we, we look in at the reports and like, well, here's what you did. so to speak. So again, not a fan of that. Would not recommend I that. I wonder
1: if people are doing that just as a way to set themselves apart. Like, okay, nobody else is doing this. I'm going to try this.
0: And that's great. Hopefully you've done it. Realize how terrible of a decision that was and why no (laughs) one else (laughs) is doing it. And you've reverted back to something that is going to be a little bit more successful long-term. I get it. This is a a stacked – I can't tell you how many people this week have emailed me about new SEO courses that have suddenly popped up because this niche is ripe for exploitation, which is exactly the term I would use, exploitation. These people who are coming into the niche – I don't offer an SEO course, never have, because I just don't think it's necessarily the best option for most bloggers. I think that there's plenty of information. That's why we started the Top Hat Rank SEO webinars. They cover everything that a blogger is going to need. Seriously, you don't have to pay for a course. But we've had some new courses pop up over the last two weeks specifically, and I just think they're a waste of money. I just don't think that they're worth the the amount of time that is necessary to go through them and the return is going to be enough to move the needle for the average blogger. But again, that's another that's another topic altogether. In this case here, I just want you to understand that we've made these tests for you or we've, made, we've had bloggers come to us making these same mistakes. Our goal is to make sure that you don't make the same mistakes as well. So definitely don't worry about the move the recipe cards to the top of the page.
1: Any other advice that you've heard that you want to push back on a little bit?
0: Well, this one, uh, issue number three here under this poor recent SEO advice, this isn't new, but it's been around for a while. And this is something that we've talked about for the last two years. At the last TestMaker online conference, which I believe was last fall, I even presented a whole case study where I showed how we had uh, ran testing on these larger bloggers and how their RPM had actually gone up. And the topic that we're discussing now is the jump to arrival button by Mediavine. As many of you know, Mediavine... Uh, railed against the jump and print buttons for years. They refused to implement it, and they finally caved in and introduced it about two and a half years ago, but with a caveat, they were going to take over your jump buttons and jump you to an ad above your recipe card because that's Mediavine. So two things wrong with that. Number one, when you have a button that says jump to recipe and you jump the user to an ad, that's an accessibility violation. It's a W3G violation, which, again, they know about. we clearly said, but... They've overlooked. Again, it, it is what it is. Their goal is to make their clients more money. They feel this makes them more money and is a good kind of a, uh, what you would call a compromise, so to speak, and, and allowing people just to jump past your your in-content ads down to your recipe card. Now, I'm against it completely. I'm always of the belief. I think that's why my clients have been so successful. I think that's why I have got the reputation I have gotten, which is that I just don't believe in bullshit. And we've been able to show that whenever we optimize for the user first, you're more successful. And users just do not like to be jumped to an ad when they think they're going to a recipe card. So as a default, we tell many of our bloggers to turn this off. Now, if you're running WP Recipe Maker or you're running WP Tasty, then it's just a matter of you logging into your dashboard and toggling off what's called the arrival unit. However, if you're running the Create plugin, you have no choice. They take over your jump buttons completely, you cannot optimize out of this. If you if you want to have a jump button and you're with Create and you're running with MediaVine, they take it over and you have to have the arrival unit enabled. Now you could turn off your buttons completely, but that you know that defeats the purpose. Or you can just go in and encode your own buttons and bypass the plugin completely. But I just really, whenever we get the chance to say this, always err on the side of your users. Okay, it's you're not gonna. You're not going to make a ridiculous amount of money having that jump to arrival button on. And as a matter of fact, in the tests that we've done, especially with big, bigger bloggers, millions of sessions a month, there was no drop in RPM at all. None at all. We removed the arrival button on a Friday. We went ahead and ran it for another 30 days. We came back and lo and behold, there was literally no drops in RPM or RPMs actually went up.
1: Do they provide an arrival button and a jump to recipe button? Or how does that look on the Mediavine
0: Pages. Well, it just looks like a jump button. It just says "jump to recipe."
1: Oh, okay. So it is just one button, but it doesn't actually go to the recipe. Oh,
0: yeah. It's just one button. It's just like yeah, it just doesn't go to the recipe. It goes to, uh, it goes to an ad, which is especially disturbing on mobile because if you're going on mobile, the ad in many cases takes up most of the screen, so we have to scroll down to actually see the start of the recipe card where we thought we were going in the first place.
1: And I imagine the user saying, well that's annoying. (laughs) I went I wanted to go to the recipe.
0: Absolutely. So I get it. Ad companies are there trying to make squeeze every penny they can out for you. But my goal here is to have you make more money long term by running less ads. And this is an example where this is just not an ad unit that is Um, appropriate for a UX first uh, SEO strategy. And so I just don't recommend it.
1: Anything else? Any other advice you want to touch on?
0: The last one involves uh, some advice that we've been hearing inconsistently about the use of titles. And as many of you know, when you're putting a recipe post together, there's three titles on a page. We have the on page H1, which is the title that you've given your post. Then we have the Yoast title, or whatever plugin you're using will automatically make another title, which is usually a reflection of the H1. But many bloggers go down and change it. Maybe they, maybe they add easy or quick or some other word to that title. So now we have two different titles. We have the browser title, which is the one that you make in your, your plugin. In your case, uh, Megan, it would be your Yoast plugin that you're using. And then we have the on-page H1, which is, again, the title of your post in the post itself. And then we have a third title, which is the H2 that you're using within your recipe card. Now, we don't necessarily need all three of those to match, but we've just recently, a colleague of mine uh, from from um, formerly of Moz, God, whose name totally escapes me here, but he recently published a report on his site, zippy.com, where he actually showed that Google was rewriting tags about 58% of the time when the browser title did not match the on-page H1. And we've been seeing that. We saw that in the search results last fall quite a bit where Google was choosing to show the H1 over the browser title because bloggers had been putting these really long titles which many had maybe picked up in a webinar, or many of them had picked up in an SEO course. And these were crazy long titles, things like uh, Easy Best Dutch Apple Pie with uh, Homemade Whipped Frosting or something like that, or Homemade Whipped. And it just those did not perform as well long-term because those were too long. The titles were too long, and they were getting rewritten on the fly by Google. And so uh, – the bottom line here is with whenever we can, we want the on-page H1 and the Yoast titles to match. Because when we find that the on-page H1 and the Yoast titles match, this lowers the possibility of, of, be, of being rewritten by Google considerably. Matter of fact, we were, we were seeing, according in, uh, in the Zippy study, and I'll, I'll find that for you in a minute, is that this almost eliminated virtually any rewriting by Google.
1: So what about the recipe card then? Should that match as well?
0: No, the recipe card uh, title, the H2, which is mostly for the recipe carousel, tends to be shorter. So in that case, we want that. I want you to uh, the best advice I could give for all bloggers on the call. If you're looking to target a very specific keyword, I want you to go into Google and look at what's being returned in the recipe carousel because in many times they're shorter. So if someone is trying to... Uh, to rank for chicken fried steak. In many cases, it is just chicken fried steak. That's the title in the recipe card. Maybe sometimes it's chicken fried steak with with uh, brown gravy. Maybe sometimes it's easy chicken fried steak. But very seldom is it a very long title. Usually we find that as a default, the titles in the recipe card that are being pulled by the H2s are shorter in
1: length. And then here's another question to go along with that. Does the word recipe need to be after the H1 title and the recipe card title?
0: It doesn't have to be, but there is a a burgeoning market of long-tail keywords that include a recipe that, especially for you smaller bloggers, uh, your bloggers who are, you know, I don't like to use domain authority at all, but let's say your domain authority is less than 30 and you're a relatively smaller blogger, there are plenty of ways that you can target very good keywords, long-tail keywords, by adding a a pending recipe at the end. So that's something that you'd want to push in to your keyword research, I, I think uh, Alika covers that a little bit in her Cooking with Keywords course, which she's recently rewritten and updated based on some feedback from me. I, I do recommend the course; I think it's very good. Also, I know that uh, Rank IQ recently came out with a very comprehensive uh, analysis of food blogs, and one of their recommendations involved again, you know, the fact that for especially smaller bloggers recipe-specific queries were on the rise and a great way for you to make some inroads against larger bloggers, so to speak. So that certainly has some uh, validation there for sure.
1: Oh, this is such awesome information. Is there anything else, any other advice you want to address, or did we get through all of that?
0: No, that's good there. We'll just move on. Move on.
1: Moving on <laughs> to the Chrome and Firefox issue, the, the new and improved Y2K issue. <laughs> Can you talk us through that?
0: Right, right. And this is going to be a little confusing to some of you on the call, so we'll try to dumb it down as much as possible. Uh, Chrome and Firefox are very close to releasing versions 100 of their browsers. For Chrome, that release date is, I think, March 29th of this year, 2022. And for Firefox, it's a little bit later. It's in May, early May of 2022. Now, what is the big deal about them releasing versions 100? Well, in a nutshell, the version 100 is a big milestone because it has the potential to cause breakage in websites. Because it's the first time the browsers will be moving from a two-digit to a three-digit version numbers. And you're like, well, what is that? What's the big deal about that? Well, the problem is, is that web developers we use all kinds of techniques to parse strings of custom code for user agents, and user agents are what are used to access websites in these browsers. So we want to make sure that the user agent, user agents, and the other reporting mechanisms within these browsers will work when we move from a two-digit to a three-digit numbers. So different browsers have different formats, and kind of like. Um, Y2K. Remember, we were talking about Y2K earlier. A lot of people were confused what would happen when we moved from 1999 to 2000, and it ended up not being a big deal for most computers. This is just very similar because without a specific specification to follow, we have all these different formats and these bloggers with regards to user agents, and they're all tied to these two-digit major version numbers. And so now we're moving the first time to a three-digit release, and this is something that The browsers google and mozilla have been testing for months to see if there's going to be any issues and they've already found a ton of bugs that they're trying to fix so i'll provide a link for you that you could include in your notes that kind of goes over the situation in detail but here's how it would affect bloggers number one we just want to make sure that if you are updating to 100 or on chrome or firefox in march or may that this is something that you're aware of and that there are remediation things that are currently being tested. For example, Firefox is trying to build in special commands that you can use if something looks wonky when you're accessing a site, and Chrome is even thinking of allowing the ability of you to freeze the install at 99 So that there's not any issues. But this is, again, I know it's a little like, oh, my God, another technical issue we have to worry about. (laughs) But this is something to have on your radar. And um, I'll provide an article from Mozilla.org that you may want to share in the notes here to let people know what's going on. But
1: that would be great. Another thing just to have on the radar, right? mm -hmm, Absolutely. Not necessarily to stress over, but just to know that it's a possibility that it could cause problems. And hopefully it's like Y2K and nothing happened. I remember that. Build up where people were like, "Oh my gosh, all of our computers are going to explode! <laughs> like the whole internet's going to go." And then it happened, and nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, that is yeah, the case.
0: Nukes did not go off. Yes, uh, exactly. Credit cards still kept working. I mean, they
1: really made such a big deal out of the possibilities there. Um, okay. Well, we made it through your list, Casey. I have taken wild notes and I'm sure everybody else listening has as well. If you don't mind, I have a few extra questions that come from yeah, my absolutely. community that they were kind of wondering about. Somebody was asking about ranking factors with Google and just how it can be really overwhelming to get all of the information. Like, There's so many ranking factors such as domain authority and backlinks and blah, blah, blah. What are the most important ranking factors that we should pay attention to?
0: Well, first of all, I want to make sure that you're aware domain authority is definitely not a ranking factor. So let's ah, clarify that right away. Domain authority right. is a made-up metric by Moz that allows us to classify sites a little bit easier. But Google has not now, nor has it ever had a domain authority factor. So please, for those of you on the call who are thinking, oh, my God, I've I got to have my domain authority come up. Just email me. I'm happy to provide you a list of sites with domain authority of less than 20 who are doing 50 to 100,000 sessions a month. No problem.
1: Yeah, and that's great news. And yeah, that's why that's newer bloggers have come onto the scene, probably right? right, and smashed yeah. it.
0: Yeah, domain authority is definitely not a ranking factor. Uh, Google does a really good job in their guidelines of pointing this out, but nobody knows what all these ranking factors are. You know, we there's some of them are very common. We know that backlinks are still a ranking factor we know that the core web vitals are a ranking factor we know that usability is a ranking factor uh, we know that making sure that your site is crawlable is a ranking factor uh, all of that you know we know that google uses title tags we know that google doesn't use meta keyword tags we know that making sure that your site is mobile friendly is a is a ranking factor what we do want to do though is and honestly even Google could never tell you what all the ranking factors are. They, they don't even know which links they count for their algorithms. They've said this many times. This is the whole point of their algorithms. So uh, for those of you on the call who are worried about this, please don't. Your goal is to really try to write the best content you can, dial in your keyword research, and make sure that your site is set up in a technical way to make it easier for Google to crawl and algorithmically score your content. That's why the audits are so popular. I, I hear whenever we hear... Um, you know, people poo-poo audits. It's mostly just out of ignorance. The whole point that we have audits is for three reasons. You know we we want to look at the we want to look at the technical issues. We want to look at the content template, and then we want to look at any off-site factors that may be impeding Google's ability to trust or crawl your content. Maybe maybe you have a an, an expertise, authoritativeness, or trustworthy EAT issue that you're not aware of. Maybe maybe your site has chain redirects on the server, or you're using a really bad server you shouldn't be using, or a really bad host, or maybe the framework of the site that you're set up is just not conducive to Google crawling the site uh, in a regular um, you know, professional way. There, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of factors that go in to audits, and that's why we had the Top Hat Rank episode on how to conduct your own audit or what factors to look at to do that using things like free tools like Google Search Console or free crawling opportunities at SEMrush or something like that. But for those on the call who are asking, well, what should we most concentrate on? Common sense, concentrate on, making sure that your site is easy to crawl, correct all your broken links, make sure that you're using a reliable recipe plugin, whether it's uh, my top recommendation is WP Recipe Maker, Tasty Create will all work. Make sure that you've made your site fast, that you're passing core web vitals as much as possible, both on mobile and now desktop is a ranking factor. And just make sure that you're making it easier for for users to process your content. Pull out your phone. If you're running ads, this is a pro tip from Casey Marquis number one right here. If you're running ads and you're on your phone and you see that your ads are popping in in the middle of a list or they're popping in in the middle of your process shots, or it's making it hard for the user to actually see all the information, then you need to learn how to group blocks, which is a very easy thing to do if you've moved to the block editor. If you can learn how to group blocks, then you can prevent Mediavine and AdThrive ads from from loading within that block, and you can control more where the ads are going to pop in. Previously on the classic editor, this was done with div tags. Now it's, now it's grouping blocks on the block editor. So very similar. Approach.
1: You taught me how to do that after my audit, and I do it all the time now, and I really appreciate that because you can control exactly where they pop in. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great advice. So really, the ranking factors we shouldn't obsess about. No,
0: no. Don't obsess about, definitely don't obsess about the wrong ranking factors. Anyone who would say that domain authority is a ranking factor, I would say run, not walk, <laughs> far away. <laughs> Don't worry about that nonsense. Okay,
1: perfect. Great advice. And then one last question about accessibility. I know that's a huge topic right now, just trying to keep our sites accessible. Do you have any like main tips or focuses for doing that? I know there are a lot of little things we can do, but if you had to just give us like a few main pieces of advice for that, what would those be?
0: Well, there's always some confusion as to whether accessibility is a ranking factor. And the topic of accessibility, like, for example, having our sign 100% compliant with W3C guidelines or WG WAG, WAG guidelines or whatever. That's not a ranking factor. But what is a ranking factor with regards to accessibility are things like alt text, making sure that your images have full alt text. Also making sure that again your site is crawlable. You know, you're not built you didn't build your whole site with JavaScript as an example, so that screen readers like JAWS or Nvidia can actually access your content. When we talk about accessibility, it's really making sure that your site is open to be viewable by those with visual or other disabilities on a regular basis without any issues. Now, when we're talking about things that will allow us as a, as a site owner that are relatively easy to fix with regards to accessibility, a couple things very quickly. Making sure alt text is correct. I still see that all the time in audits. Alt text exists for you to visually describe what's in the photo to someone who cannot see the image. Google will count up to 12 to 16 words, so I don't want you just to say um, this is beef stroganoff with mushroom sauce. Instead, maybe you should say this is a, a a plate of beef stroganoff covered with mushrooms and brown gravy on a blue plate next to a loaf of bread, as an example. That's a, a better alt text, and it's easily able to do that in 12 to 16 words. The other thing is just making sure that you've worked on your colors. I run into custom blog designs all the time where everything is pretty, but it's incredibly poor for anyone who has a visual disability. Uh, Andrew Wilder, for example, has done multiple presentations on accessibility. I know he knows his stats better than I, but I believe that visual disabilities make up the largest class of disabilities of those accessing your site content so we want to make sure that your font size is large you know 17 to 18 pixels is good and we also want to make sure that you're using colors that are that pass visual accessibility which means that there's a I think five point uh, I think it's like 5.4 or something or 5.50 to 1 on the contrast ratio and you use free tools to do this you you go type in color contrast checker go in put your font color put your link color and look at it and you'll see right away does this fail does this fail guidelines and you know eight out of ten blogs that audit, they'll fail these and it'll be it won't even be close so we'll go in and darken up the colors and but you know maybe they're using a maybe they're using a really light blue which you know maybe looks great to them but once we darken it up it is substantially an easier and more professional appearance for those who might be accessing a site with less than 2020 visual acuity. One
1: of the tips you gave me, I believe, after my audit was to make sure I was putting periods at the end of my alt text sentences. How important is that?
0: Well, that just lets the screen reader know when to stop. So it's just a common, you know, it's very easy to do. Uh, is it going to kill you if you don't have periods? No, but it's just a polite thing to do, especially for the screeners that, you know, when to stop and, and go on to something else. One of the other things that we'd want to do is make sure that you have an accessibility policy on your website. Uh, tra- very easy to run these. Just type in free accessibility generator. You can go and customize one to your site. Point out that you've been working on these issues. Maybe you can list the litany of changes you've made. And, you know, Unfortunately, there are still a lot of these run, these fly-by-night accessibility lawsuits. I had an audit last week with a relatively big blogger who had pushed up was shaken down for one of these. And she regrets it because now she realized that she could have easily um, got around it by making some simple changes. But I, I know it's scary to get one of these letters. And you're like, oh, maybe I'll just pay to go, have it go away. And I would urge you not to do that if you can.
1: Back to the periods. Uh, if you are writing, let's say, a bulleted list within your blog post, do you need to put periods there or does that not matter either?
0: It doesn't really matter. Not for bulleted lists. No. this is uh, Periods are mostly for screen readers for all text. That's it.
1: All right. I'm through my questions. Casey, you are a wealth of knowledge today. Thank you. And I just realized that I forgot to ask you your fun fact, and I definitely need to do that. So um, after the fact, what is your fun fact to share with everyone?
0: My, my fun fact to share for everyone is that my daughter just turned 18. So it is a delight. As I'm sure many of you know, if you have daughters, my daughter turned 18 and she is great, but she is literally like, okay, now I'm an adult We're now. When am I moving out? When you know I'm getting a tattoo. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Let's go to the casino. It's (laughs) it's fantastic. So
1: so delight in quotes. Yeah, in quotes. Oh gosh, yes. I don't have daughters, but I do have a teenager. And wow, the sass. It's just. It's such a difference from being that preteen kind of sweet stage. So I can't imagine when they turn eighteen and they're like, "Bye, I'm out." Right. Yes. And then also, do you have a favorite quote, another favorite quote or words of inspiration to share with us, Casey?
0: Oh, you know, let's go with a classic. Let's go with Maya Angelou. I believe that she used to say, you will face many defeats in life, but never let yourself be defeated. That is something that all food bloggers need to have as a mantra. Put that, go ahead and get one of those stitch fix. Get one of those uh, self-stitch things. Put that up. Uh, above your computer. you know. Again, you will face many defeats in life, but never let yourself be defeated. That is a very telling quote for, for bloggers near and far for sure.
1: I feel like every blogger should probably print that out as a sticker and put it on their monitor That's right, right now.
0: Put that on their monitor right now. You guys are good to go. Yes. And for those of you on the call, you're doing a great job. Pat yourself on the back. This is an incredibly difficult niche. It has never been more competitive than it is now you can do this. Just really work on trying to get your information from vetted sources. Don't take everything you hear at face value. Do your own research and keep publishing out that new content. You guys got this.
1: I love that you just said that. Thank you. That was very encouraging. And thank you for taking the time today. I know you're a busy man. So we appreciate you, Casey. And just, yeah, thanks for everything you shared.
0: Pleasure is entirely mine. Thanks for having me, Megan. Always a, always a good time.
1: Yeah. Well, I will just mention your show notes quick because you did mention a few resources during the episode. So if anyone wants to go look at those, you can head over to eatblogtalk.com forward slash media wise. Casey, remind everyone where they can find you online and on social media. Sure.
0: Absolutely. You can follow me at MediaWise. That's M-E-D-I-A-W-Y as in yellow, S-E. I'm on Twitter MediaWise. I'm on Facebook MediaWise. You can find me uh, mostly in the Food Blogger Central and the Food Dogger Friends Facebook groups. I'm also in the uh, NerdPress Facebook group and the uh, WP Recipe Maker and Feast Facebook groups answering questions when time permits. So, uh, I'm also going to be at the tastemaker conference. I don't know when this goes live, Yay. but I'm going to be at the tastemaker conference in Chicago in a couple of weeks. It's going to be great. Cold weather is my friend.
1: <laughs> yes. It's embrace great. it. Exactly.
0: We <laughs> embrace it. Uh, and if anyone is there in, in person, love to love to meet you in person. So on that note, thanks again for having me.
1: Thank you, Casey, and thank you for listening today, food bloggers. I will see you in the next episode.
0: We're glad you could join us on this episode of Eat Blog Talk. For more resources based on today's discussion, as well as show notes and an opportunity to be on a future episode of the show, be sure to head to eatblogtalk.com. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll be here to feed you on Eat Blog Talk.